Hey Murder Fam, Alyssa here. So after watching Dateline with butter-voiced Keith Morrison a couple of weeks ago regarding more Lori Vallow Daybell updates and so on, I thought I might give everyone an update on all three cases that I've been podcasting about. The next Wednesday's podcast will be a regular true crime one though, I promise. So let's get started with anything new in the Onision case. Now, I went back through my notes from my podcast about him to see where we left off. And reading through the comments of some of the Chris Hansen videos, it seems that everyone loves that Chris Hansen is now calling him a YouTube psycho brat. And I think it's fitting indeed. All of the attention that Onision was getting due to Chris Hansen and these interviews and investigations against him trafficking underage girls to his home his cult-like behavior towards girls, like trying to get them to shave their heads in order to be, quote, forgiven and all of that. All of that attention went straight to his head. His YouTube posts after that became increasingly bizarre. I urge you to watch reaction videos to his, but don't actually go to his channel because we don't want to give any revenue to a potential predator and so on. Now, if you don't know about Onision, I did a podcast about him a few weeks ago. So if you want to go back and listen so that you'll be up to speed, I I recommend that. Chris Hansen continued to interview Onision's alleged victims. And I say that because he's not been charged with anything officially. So I'm just covering myself. It is my belief, though, that what the girls have accused him of is true. So Onision began uploading videos, putting on this whole show about his partner, Kai, kicking him out of the house and that he was forced to sleep out in the woods or in a hotel. He would go from screaming to fake crying, demanding everyone stop calling him what he's been accused of. Then he started saying that, of course, that was all fake. We were stupid for falling for it and that his partner had not kicked him out of the house. Then he moved on to doing these creepy finger paintings while chatting about his situation, then went on to create these sort of cartoon animations where he tried to pull people like PewDiePie and Markiplier into his madness. He was using software that somebody that Chris was talking to had said was used mostly for, like hentai pornography I don't know so okay we have since found out that last year in the beginning of September 2019 there had been a visit to Onision's house from Child Protective Services who had received a call stating Onision was talking to minors and was possibly sexually abusing young girls This is from a police report about another incident back on September 12th, 2019. So this is 10 days after the CPS visit where one of Onision and Kai's children, their two year old daughter fell out of a second story window of their home down onto the concrete driveway. That poor baby girl sustained very serious injuries mostly to her head. 
Her skull was fractured, causing brain hemorrhaging or bleeding on the brain. One part of the skull fracture was actually concave, like dented in. So what do you think her precious father did? He went and he got a camera and he filmed it. Yes, folks, he filmed it. His toddler laying on the driveway, multiple skull fractures, bleeding, terrified, in unimaginable pain. And he's filming it. Guys, he's filming it. Keep in mind that neither parent heard the child fall out of the window. The toddler got herself up and started tapping on the garage door. At least that's what I read. That's how she was discovered. Onision was in his garage filming or doing whatever. He didn't hear her smack on the concrete. Oh no. He heard her tapping on the door. I mean, clearly these children are not being watched. The police asked him why he filmed it, and he said he wanted to be able to show the doctor as well as the police what had happened because of a previous incident where a friend threatened to kill herself and said she would make him look responsible. And this is most likely referring to Shiloh because, you know, he filmed her having seizures and whatnot, and then he would upload that crap to YouTube. Even the police who wrote the report specifically stated, quote, James's explanation for why he took a video seemed strange to me, unquote. So I'll put a link to the police report in the podcast notes below if you want to go and read it yourself. There was actually another incident where Kai, as I'm calling her, was filming a mukbang video eating tacos, I believe it was, and Onision can be clearly heard in the background screaming at the children. From witnesses' statements, it seems that Onision and Kai do not really want to be bothered with the children. Now, both parents leave the children to be tended by teenage girls that they, at least up until recently, had residing in their home. Okay, so four days after his daughter is rushed to the hospital, having endless tests, in pain, probably terrified, Onision starts making highly inappropriate tweets. You're not going to believe this. One of them said, quote, Stand in front of the window over there. The world should see how pathetic and helpless you are. I'm going to humiliate you, and right before you lose consciousness, I'm going to destroy you. Unquote. Now, is it just me, or do you see a correlation between this tweet and what happened to his child? This man and his spouse do not work. They're both home full time. There is no excuse for this. And for the last half of 2019, up until January 2020, there have been a minimum of 12 911 calls made either from or about Onision's house, the majority of them, of course, being welfare checks. So why have children if you aren't invested in the work it takes to be a reasonably good parent? Well, it's the opinion of a lot of people that Onision actually has a pregnancy fetish, and it would appear that he does, based on his past YouTube content. He has spoken a lot about getting a woman pregnant. 
has never seemed or appeared to have any interest in that child once it's born though. And it seems that after the teenage girls left the house, you know, his live-in nannies were gone, is when this incident happened. It appears that only a couple of weeks to about a month after this incident with his daughter, he is again screaming and ranting and raving for YouTube videos in and around his house, all while his daughter is either still in the hospital with critical head injuries or possibly at home, I don't know, trying to rest and recuperate. So Chris Hansen decided to attempt to speak to Onision by going to his house on January 9th of this year. As Chris's crew stayed out on the street, Chris went and knocked on the door. Onision, of course, wouldn't answer the door. Instead, he called 911, stating he had a stalker who was knocking on his door. Now, you can hear the 911 tape of this call if you Google it, but Chris and his team willingly left. Then Onision went to court seeking an order of protection from harassment from Chris Hansen and a different YouTuber. But he had the wrong Chris Hansen served in Connecticut. But it wasn't a problem really because Onision showed up um, with a bulletproof vest on under his suit, I might add, and said he wanted to dismiss the case that he would take legal action in some other way, which he and his spouse Kai have both threatened on social media. And as we know, Onision lost his Patreon account, now he's lost his Discord account, his Twitch account. I believe there's one or two other things, but YouTube itself has not banned him from his predatory behaviors toward underage girls. And then we have Onision's actual father who has finally spoken out. Randy, his father's name, heard through his stepdaughter, his wife's daughter, about the drama beginning to surround his son. You know, that his son is now under FBI investigation, Washington State investigation, and also under investigation from the county sheriff's department on allegations that he is sexually grooming underage women child sex trafficking because, you know, he flew these girls across state lines and some other offenses and so on. Randy told Newsweek, quote, it's hard to watch and hear about all this stuff involving your son. It's hard to talk about. Second guessing if I could have done anything differently and just wished that things were very different than they are now. It pains me that this kid has made such a mess of his life. Unquote. His father states that he was a bright child but turned into this super moody teenager and that he does not understand why his son is so fascinated with underage girls or thinks that it's okay to treat women so horribly. Randy also says that he fought for his kids but was ultimately given six weeks every summer and a phone call on Sundays. He was forced to leave his job in Indiana as a pastor and had to move to Ohio. He says he couldn't afford plane tickets, so he would make the drive from Ohio to Washington State to pick Greg, a.k.a. Onision, and the two other children up. Then, when the visit was over, he of course would have to make that drive all the way back there and back home again. 
He says that he bought toys for his children and bicycles and all the things and spent all the quality time with his kids as he could. But contact became less and less. And my instincts tell me that Onision's mother probably played a role in that, but I have no proof, of course. So when Onision turned 17, he went to live with Randy and his wife. At that point, Randy described Onision as, quote, a difficult teenager who didn't want to follow any rules. Greg threatened to burn down the house a couple of times when he was going off on some of his tangents. Whenever he would get angry and start yelling and cursing and calling us all sorts of names, it was just kind of escalating and so I was afraid that there might be a physical altercation and that's why I called the police. I told the officers, look, I need help. Can you explain to Greg that he has to listen to his parents and can't do whatever he wants? Unquote. But his father and stepmother offered to send him to an L.A. film school for additional training because they saw that he really loved movies and media, but of course Onision apparently felt that his skills were well beyond that. Another quote from the Newsweek article. Randy said, quote, During a road trip to Nashville, he was listening to his music and had it up very, very loud even though he said he's listening to his headphones. I said, Greg, please turn your music down, and he wouldn't do it. So I pulled off on the exit. I stopped, turned around, and said, Greg, turn your music down. It's way too loud. And that's when he went off. He started screaming and was going to bolt. He was going to leave. And so I turned around, I unbuckled my seatbelt, and tried to reach and grab his shoulders to keep him from leaving. Debbie was trying to untie his shoes and he was kicking at me, broke my glasses, and bloodied my nose. Unquote. And it just so happened that a passerby called the police. Randy said that it just so happened a passerby called the police and Greg was then taken into custody at a juvenile detention center. Randy and his wife Deborah hired an attorney to try and work out a settlement to only get him probation. Deborah said, quote, We never saw him take responsibility except that one time when he was behind bars, and we're sitting with him at the table and the guards are watching. And that really, it was like it snapped him out of it. He was acting like a normal, scared kid at that point. Unquote. Onision has made videos with his very own version of this story, of course, saying his father was choking him and him attacking his father was in self-defense. Onision complained that his father went through his journal, to which his father readily admits to, but he said that he went through it to see if there were any possible clues as to why his son was acting so over-the-top strange and violently. Eventually, Onision left and they didn't talk anymore, except when Onision called to say he was joining the Air Force. The last time Randy spoke to his son was when Onision was going to be sent to Korea. And that's about all I have as far as Onision goes. Things have gotten a bit quiet, according to Chris Hansen's video, which I will also put in the podcast notes, and that is due to the pandemic. But he assures us that nothing has changed, that the FBI, state, and local authorities in Washington are still very much on the case and more is coming.
Okay, so moving on to Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. A couple of Fridays ago, I sat notebook in hand and took notes during the two-hour Dateline special about her and her missing children. I have not written that feverishly since college. My already crappy wrists from a lifetime of typing were not happy with me, but I did find out some new information. So again, if you don't know who Lori Vallow or Chad Daybell are, or are at least Maybe you don't know the backstory. I've done two podcasts on her now in the very recent past, so go back and listen to those if you'd like to, and then you'll be up to speed pretty quick. During the newest Dateline episode, they spoke with Lori's oldest son, Colby Moore, and we found out that Lori was in beauty pageants in the 1990s. She was actually crowned Miss Texas in 1994, And no one's disputing that she's a beautiful woman, of course. By the time she was 22, she was married to her second husband, which, with her Mormon upbringing, I'm making an assumption her family would not have supported that whatsoever. She had her son Colby with her second husband, but that marriage was basically over before it began. She had a hair salon, and Colby said she uprooted them several times, moving around and taking her business with her. He remembers wishing that they could just stay in one place for a long time, but he says outside of that, she did always have a knack for making everything fun. In 2000, she met Joseph Ryan. They married, and she had Tylee. Colby said in his interview with Keith Morrison that he did not get along well with Joe, quote unquote, because he said that Joe picked on him quite a bit and that he also sexually abused him, but that he was a good dad to Tylee. So eventually Colby told his mother what Joe had done and his mother was understandably devastated and she left and that's good. I have no problem with that, of course. Colby spoke of a lot of court battles for custody issues with Tylee, you know, back and forth. Melanie, Lori's niece, you know, the one who left her husband and kids, moved to Idaho to be near Lori. So during all of the court and custody stuff with Joe, Melanie went to help Lori with Colby and Tylee. Then in 2007, we already know that Alex Cox, who is Lori's brother, attacked Joe on the courthouse steps and tried to kill him. But what has changed is that if the allegation of sexual abuse against Colby are true, then I can understand why Alex did that, because as you all know, we don't touch children. Now, Colby said in his interview that while Charles Vallow who was the next husband, of course, was a bit of a showman. He was super polite and good to him and Tylee. Charles Vallow married Lori in 2007, and Colby says that life was finally stable. Charles had money, and he spoiled Lori and did his best to make her happy. Life was steady for a while. It was predictable. It was good. When Colby was 17 years old, that's when Lori and Charles adopted JJ. Now, Charles's sister is JJ's grandmother, so JJ was technically family to Charles. 
Colby said at first he was kind of hesitant about them bringing another child into the picture, but that once they met JJ, he and Tylee absolutely loved him. So in 2014, Colby graduated high school and they all moved to Kauai and everyone loved it. Lori began being a youth leader at the local LDS church. People that knew her there said she was fun and full of life and kind to everyone. Around a year later, Colby moved back to the mainland. He got married and then he said his mother's behavior toward him kind of changed and that it was a little creepy. He said she felt competitive against his new wife and began talking to him in a way that made him feel like he was her boyfriend and it made him very uncomfortable. Around this time, Lori met Chad Daybell. Lori actually got an email from Chad around this time stating, quote, a satanic demon was in Charles that went by the name of Nick Schneider. And after that, Lori began referring to Charles as Nick. And when Charles asked why and who Nick was, she told him that she was well aware of the fact that Nick had killed Charles and was inhabiting Charles's body. So this is when Charles works to get Lori put in that voluntary 72 hour hold at a local clinic for her mental health. And she agreed initially, but then refused stating that they would, you know, find out about her being a translated being. That changed into how Lori started saying that Charles was just not at her quote, spiritual level. And the whole family moved from Kauai to just outside of Phoenix, Arizona. Then not too long after that, Lori called up her friend in Kauai and said that she was leaving Charles and asked if she could come stay with her for a while, to which the friend agreed. Only when Lori showed up, she just had Tylee with her. Remember from my first podcast, Charles was very concerned that Lori just disappeared with Tylee and abandoned JJ. The friend that Lori went to stay with said that Lori was acting kind of manic and very disorganized. Lori was saying that Charles was a liar and how he had cheated on her, which we have no proof of as of yet. Then Lori began to brag about how funny she thought it was that she had canceled a flight that Charles had scheduled and how she had stolen his truck from the airport so he'd have no way to drive back home. And even when he got home, his clothes would be gone and so on. Now this friend truly felt like she was being actively recruited to join this mysterious and very concerning group that Lori was a part of and of course she very politely declined. So then Charles began telling people, you know, closest to him that Lori was saying she was a translated being and that the end of the world was going to occur on July 22nd, 2020, which folks for the time of this recording is literally a couple of months away. Lori's friend also said that she began to get very concerned for Lori as she began talking about the end of times and that she was part of the 144,000 ordained to go straight to heaven. Her friend said that Lori from when the family lived there before and then the Lori that was visiting her with just Tylee, well, it was like night and day. She seemed like a completely different person. 
But Lori returned to Arizona. Charles at this point had filed for divorce, wanting full custody of JJ as well he should, with Lori only having supervised visitations. So, okay, let's switch over to Chad Daybell for just a bit. Now, his old pal said he was a good guy, kind and well-spoken back in the day. He met and married Tammy, his now dead wife, who, as we know, has been exhumed for autopsy, and they started having kids. So this near-death experience that he refers to was apparently, the way that I understood it, a big ocean wave that hit him. Correct me if I'm wrong, of course, but that's how I heard it. That he was swimming or playing in the ocean, and a wave hit him and overtook him. And it was in that moment that he had this near-death experience where he was told that he and other saints were to be in Rexburg, Idaho, to be able to survive, you guessed it, the apocalypse. With this epiphany, he began to bring people into his line of thinking and forming his little group, you know, a cult. One of the former group members said that they quickly became sort of end of the world preppers, that tens of thousands of dollars were being spent on prepper stuff. Chad began preaching that evil spirits were in everything, such as, of course, people, but also like computers and inanimate objects. For example, if this former follower, say, found a printer that was jammed, they would call people to have a prayer over the printer to try to drive the evil spirit out of it. Yeah. Yeah, you heard me. The followers were constantly preached at to be more obedient and to sacrifice more, everything, more, more. And once this former follower decided to leave them, they told her that she, quote, had a really bad devil inhabiting me, unquote. There was talk of zombies and how they were taking over people's bodies. Chad had also told someone, as I've stated in the previous podcast, that his wife was supposed to have died in a car accident. But for whatever reason, that didn't happen. And now because of that, get this. He said a zombie inhabited her body. At some point before Lori and Tylee flew back to Hawaii, Lori took part in a podcast where she literally said that they wanted to, quote, burn the earth with glory, unquote. So then Lori returns to Arizona from Hawaii. And from that point, it is said that Lori seemed completely uninterested in her children after meeting Chad. Lori showed back up to the house in Arizona after being missing for nearly two months and Charles was there packing up the house. And now remember, he had filed for divorce. As we know, Lori's brother Alex murdered Charles on July 11th, 2019, saying it was self-defense. There's, you know, policeman body cam footage of him talking to the police about it. Lori called Colby, her oldest son, and told him that Charles had died from a heart attack. So Colby goes over to the house and Tylee answers the door and she's crying. And at this point, Lori finally tells Colby the truth, that his uncle Alex had shot and killed Charles. 
Colby, in his interview, said he left that house very uneasy and that immediately after that, things went downhill fast. Oh, and Charles had in fact told his sister and brother-in-law that if something happened to him, it would be Lori and her brother Alex for sure, which turned out to be quite foretelling, supposedly. So Lori, after Charles's murder, hastily moved up to Rexburg, Idaho to be near Chad. Then Alex moved up there. Then Melanie, Lori's niece, moved up there too. And the two actually, their apartments were directly side by side. There was that family trip to Yellowstone with the children, Lori and Uncle Alex. A photograph of Tylee taken there would be the last physical proof that Tylee was alive. Colby called his mother to check in. He stated that she was being very evasive and got off the phone really fast and that she ignored texts and calls and emails and so on. Now, Melanie's now ex-husband Brandon was the one that got shot at, right, when he was getting out of his car. It has been the consensus that Alex shot at him, but there's we don't have 100% proof of that yet. Melanie says Alex most likely isn't the one that shot Brandon, and I'll come back to Melanie in a bit. So toward the end of September 2019 was the last time both children were seen alive. October 9th, we're talking a week later, Chad Daybell's wife Tammy was also shot at with what she believed was a paintball gun. New information I found was that she was also training to run a marathon, so she was in perfect health to everyone's knowledge. Ten days after she had been shot at, which again, most likely was Alex, she died in her sleep? According to the police, Chad did seem to be grieving normally for a husband, but remember, he already believed Tammy was a zombie because she hadn't died when she was supposed to. And then, of course, we know Chad didn't want an autopsy. Now, Melanie, this mysterious niece says that Chad just adored his wife and she felt bad for him when Tammy died. But just before Tammy died, Chad had upped Tammy's life insurance to $430,000. Yes, guys. That's what Dateline said. Then two weeks after Tammy died, Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell were on the beach in Kauai getting married. Their wedding rings had been ordered 17 days before Tammy's death, and they were ordered off of Charles Vallow's Amazon account, and they were shipped to a Charles Vallow in Rexburg, Idaho, after Charles was already in the ground. Melanie was interviewed by Keith Morrison, and she said she didn't know why they got married so fast. She gave the whole, you know, both of them were mourning spouses and blah, blah, blah speech, which was not convincing. Melanie said she didn't think it was odd at all. She also said that by the time she moved up to Rexburg, she never got a visual on the children either, though she said that their stuff was there. So Colby starts trying to contact his sister Tylee and he's not getting any answers. He begins calling and texting and keeping an eye on her social media, begging for contact and nothing. 
Charles's sister, the grandmother of JJ, called the authorities to do a welfare check on at least JJ in Idaho. And Lori told them that the children were with that friend in Arizona, remember? After the authorities left, it appears Chad and Lori packed up and fled back to Hawaii. But of course, Melanie says that the move to Hawaii had already been planned before the authorities came to check on the children. Conveniently the next day. They were leaving conveniently the next day. Mm-hmm. So Chad leased a place in Hawaii and in the paperwork, he cited that they had no pets and no children. Melanie quickly married her new husband, Ian, two weeks after she met him on an LDS dating app. Supposedly, supposedly. Then quickly after, Alex married a woman named Zulima, who claimed she had the power to control the elements. Yes, my friends. And Melanie swears these marriages were not timed in any specific way the way that it appears. Melanie then says 13 days after Alex married Zulima, they had moved back to Arizona at this point. So then 13 days later, Alex begins to feel sick, saying that he felt like he couldn't breathe. He died. His stepson found him face down and unresponsive. And apparently the young adult was not willing to roll Alex over because he was, quote, too big. Supposedly, you know, this should be my new word, supposedly, Zulima is not a suspect in Alex's death. So how did they get Melanie to talk to them? Ian, of course, was introduced into the very strange beliefs that Chad's extremists' beliefs, no, Ian, of course, was introduced into the very strange world behind Chad's extremist beliefs and his offshoot of Mormonism. And by offshoot, I mean barely even related whatsoever. And Ian's ex-wife became concerned and most likely threatened court stuff regarding his own children. So he got in touch with the authorities. He turned over a computer and wore a wire while speaking with Melanie as well as the Daybells, to see if any of them would speak about the location of the children. But no one would say. Ian fessed up to Melanie that he was working with the authorities, and now she is conveniently doing so as well. Or is she? They're now saying they won't do anything without speaking through lawyers. Melanie did say that Lori and Chad spoke about the children being inhabited by zombies and that the children needed to die. Alex, Lori's brother, had stated firmly that, quote, no task was too difficult due to his faith in his beliefs and to show God his unwavering commitment to him. It is widely speculated that Alex murdered those children somehow. The case has been handed over to, I believe, a district attorney who has said Chad and Lori are now under investigation for conspiracy, attempted murder, and murder in relation to Tammy, and that they have digital evidence, most likely seized from Chad's home after they fled to Hawaii. Chad and Lori's lawyer did not respond to Dateline's request for an interview. Melanie maintains that there has been no crime, that the children are fine and Lori is still in jail, and her hearing has been pushed out until July. But guys, there's a new development. 
So an article on the Investigation Discovery webpage is stating, quote, Fourth mysterious death uncovered in connection with Lori Vallow, unquote. And actually, I'm just going to quote the article. Quote, Another mysterious death connected to the Idaho mother of two children who went missing last September has come to light. Adding to the long list of unexplained deaths, Court TV recently reported that Vallow's older sister, Stacy Lynn Cox Cope, suddenly passed away at the age of 31 in 1998. Her cause of death also remains undetermined. Unquote. So now her sister's death is also being looked into. So let's let's look at this. Let's see. She's got two dead siblings, um, two dead husbands, and two missing, most likely dead children, though I sincerely hope not. So that's where we are with the Lori Vallow case. Now they're looking into her sister's death. So for the final update, Davi Vanity. I did his original podcast a week ago, but wanted to quickly give you some updates that I found just as I was finishing up the podcast. Two more associates of Davi's have come forward to speak with Chris Hansen, Fallen, Vendetta, and Jennifer Hill. Vendetta claims she did not know about Davi's victims when she was working with him. She was helping him write songs and so on. The pair wanted to hire a photographer who was apparently very hesitant to work with Davi because of the rumors that he was a, you know, rapist pedophile. So Vendetta got online and researched and found out what was going on. She asked Davi about it and he said, you know, well, these girls were 17, they're lying. He said the act was consensual, but she went home. This is referring to the Colorado case and and her parents found out and got all hurt about it. Now, Jennifer Hill spoke about how horribly he treated other band members and his staff and how he didn't pay them. Both girls talk about how there are definitely multiple other victims. Another victim in particular who was 15 years old when she was set up to star in one of his music videos, she has said that he sexually assaulted her from the age of 15 to 18 years old and that her mother was involved but swears her mother knew nothing about the assaults. Davi's strategy is to get in good with the mothers, gain their trust, then begin to groom the daughters. And now Chris Hansen alleges that he now knows of victimized, very underage girls coming forward internationally with stories about Davi. So it looks like this will be an international investigation. And guys, that's it for this week. Next Wednesday's quote, not serial killer podcast will be a regular case, not gossip or updates, I promise. And as always, thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate every single one of you. I really hope you know that. And I want you guys to have a great day. Okay, bye-bye.